0: go to the Lord in prayer as we look to his word. Father, we thank you for raising your son from the dead to show us, to show the world that he is the Savior, he is the King, his sacrifice was acceptable to you, the only payment that can be made for sin. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving of yourself, humbling yourself coming to earth, living a perfect life, and sacrificing yourself so that we might know you. I pray now as we look to your word that you would be high and lifted up and exalted and that we would anticipate your return. In your name we pray, amen. Today, of course, we do celebrate resurrection the resurrection of Jesus Christ on this very day. Nearly 2000 years ago, Jesus was raised from the dead to show that he is the one, the only one whose sacrifice was acceptable to God as payment for sin, to show that he is the one, the only one who is who he said he was, God, Savior, Lord, King, Redeemer, Judge, Christ, Messiah. And after his resurrection, he did not go into heaven right away, did he? But for 40 days he appeared to his disciples and to others on several occasions. And then in Acts 9, if you remember, uh, there, Jesus was with his disciples and he rose into uh, the sky and the clouds. And, and as he's doing, the disciples they are standing there gazing up into the sky. And you remember what happened after that? Two, two men showed up, right? Two angels. They were standing next to them and they asked, why are you, why are you gazing up into the sky? To which the obvious answer is, Duh. You know, why are you gazing into the sky? And, and uh, the reason they asked the question was because you know he's coming back, right? He's not leaving for good. He's going to return in the same way that he left. You see, God's plan did not stop at the resurrection. That wasn't the end of the story. Yet it often seems that so much attention is given to his birth and his death and his resurrection. All of those from his first coming that sometimes there's more attention is given to the neglect Of his second coming, that the second coming seems to at times receive only a footnote. But Jesus' second coming is all over the New Testament. In fact, on average, about one out of every 25 verses refers directly to the second coming. Jesus himself talked about it over 20 times in the Gospels. And over 50 times in the New Testament, we are exhorted and encouraged to be ready for his return. See, the second coming is not an afterthought. It's not kind of the, the, uh, the, the, the resurrection being the, the a main event and, and the second coming isn't simply just an afterthought of God's following that. And so as we remember the resurrection today, we really should direct our attention not just to the fact that Jesus has left, but more importantly, that He is returning, that He's coming back. His work here isn't finished. His work here on earth isn't done. At the end of his life, Paul wrote these words in 2 Timothy 4, eight. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have loved His appearing. To all who have loved His appearing. I like how the Net Bible translates that to all who have set their affection on His appearing. You see, that is the heart of the believer. The believer does not only look to gratitude, look to the cross with gratitude, the believer does not only look to the resurrection with wonder, but also the believer looks with longing and joy and excitement and affection and desire and anticipation of his second coming. When was the last time that you thought about Jesus' return? I mean, really thought about it, I really pondered it. Do you have an affection for it, an anticipation? As Ed asked us last week, among many questions, one that struck me was when he said, do you stare up and then wonder, when will he return? I think that's a good question to consider. And in light of that, we're not going to go look back at the resurrection today, but we're going to instead turn our attention to look ahead to his return. So please turn in your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, if you need a Bible, there is one in the pew in front of you and just pick that up. Turn to the last book in the Bible and turn to nearly the last chapter in that book, Revelation 19. Here we're given probably the most vivid picture and description of what Jesus's return looks like, what what Jesus, the sequel, is going to appear to be. And it's a picture that is a lot different than I think most people expect. I think many expect to see the same Jesus that came the first time, the Jesus who came from humble beginnings, born in poverty and obscurity, the one who spent his first night in an animal's feeding trough, the the great miracle worker who was often maligned and misunderstood, the one who suffered so much ridicule and tragically was tortured despite the good that he did, the one who was a victim of the establishment who was murdered on a cross but then this humble and pious man was vindicated by triumphantly rising from the dead. And all who grieved his loss were then made happy. It's, it's a nice story. Some treat it almost like a Hallmark movie. But those who've not spent a lot of time carefully reading the Gospels or, or much time in the Bible, they have this impression that Jesus is only this mild-mannered, humble pacifist who only came to help. And so the expectation when they hear of him returning is that this same sort of man will be coming back. But we have to remember something. We have to remember that when Jesus took on human flesh and came the first time to earth, much of his glory was veiled. Just like Prince Edward. You remember the Prince and the Pauper, Mark Twain's great novel? He talked about the, the prince, prince of, uh, um, of England, who has traded places with this uh, peasant, and they switched clothes. And as the prince went out, was, was outside of the, of the castle area, and he claimed to the crowds that he was still the prince. But the crowds, they mocked him, and they ridiculed him, and some even beat him for making that claim and because he was wearing the clothes of a peasant. And for our sake, Jesus humbly wore peasant's clothes, when he came the first time. But don't let those garments fool you. For as Revelation 19 shows, upon his return, we will not see a prince dressed as a pauper, but we will see a king coming for war. Revelation 19 comes at the end of the seven year tribulation when the Antichrist, the one world leader of the one world government, is in power. This Antichrist will demand that he be worshipped as God. There will be a one-world religion that has been set up by the false prophet. And any who would not take his mark or worship him would then be persecuted. Many believers will be killed during this time. And then Revelation 16 describes demons going forth from the Antichrist and from the false prophet to go and deceive the kings of the earth, to to deceive them, to gather their armies together, to fight against God's people, to come to Jerusalem and destroy the remnant that was left of God's people and to attack God himself. And so here we come to chapter 19 of Revelation. The armies have been ravaging Jerusalem. They they lay uh, uh, themselves surrounding the city ready for more battle. And then this is the vision that the Apostle John sees in Revelation 19, verse 11. I would ask you to please stand as we read from God's Word. And and as I read this, please think about this scene and try to picture it in your mind's eye. John says this, "...and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war." And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. In order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. I think you may be seated. Pretty graphic. Indeed, the pauper's clothes have come off. At Christ's return, this is no baby lying in a feeding trough. This is no victim being mocked and scorned. This is no man carrying a cross of humiliation. Here we see an exalted king who is coming for battle. And this morning we're going to focus on Revelation 19 so that we get a clear picture of the resurrected Lord, so that we might rightly honor and exalt and reverence him as he deserves. Especially on this day, but not only this day, every day. The Apostle John here in this verses that we read, he describes three facets about the risen Christ. He describes his appearance and his names and his actions. And we're going to look at those three things this morning. Let's first look at Christ's appearance. Back in Revelation 19, verse 11, we've reached not only the climax of the book of Revelation, we've reached really the climax of human history. In John's vision of the future, he sees the sky being ripped open and a white horse coming out of that fissure. And that horse carries none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And those hearing this in John's day, when they heard about this picture, they would recognize that it's familiar. It is the picture of a a conquering warrior was commonplace in those days for a victorious Roman war hero. When he would come back and march through the city of Rome, he'd be marching upon a white horse. This scene is a marked contrast from the last time that Jesus entered Jerusalem just before his crucifixion. Do you remember what he was riding then? It's not a white horse, was it? It's a young donkey. And do you remember, he wasn't traveling through the air, but on a dirt road. And if you remember at that time he entered the city only to be executed, but this time upon his return he comes as the executioner and notice in verse fourteen Jesus isn 't alone is he he 's got a mighty army behind him, a mighty army wearing clean white linen clothes and and riding white horses as well back in revelation nineteen verse seven we're given a clue as to the identity of this throng. As we see there, as the church is being described, the bride of Christ, it says that it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So here we see the appearance of Christ's bride. It is his bride that makes up the army coming down from heaven as they are clothed in the same garments. In verses 14 and in verse 8. And a second reason that we know this army is is comprised of the saints, is based on the fact in Revelation 17, verse 14, it says there that the saints will be with Christ upon his return when he wages war against his enemies. And in addition to the saints, I think the army also includes the holy angels because Matthew 25, 31, and 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, among other places, tell us that the angels will be with Christ at his second coming. So picture that scene. The Lord coming on a white horse in the sky and behind him a, a throng of, of uncal, uncalculable, of great number of saints, of holy angels riding in white, a blazing, a blinding sight. And these following him out of heaven. It's a brilliant display. And as you look to that white horse and notice that Jesus is riding the white horse, which tells us something about him. He is still in his resurrected body. He still has the appearance of a man but no ordinary man. Notice how John describes him at the beginning of verse 12. He says that Jesus has eyes that are a fiery flame. It depicts this idea that there's no fact, nothing is hidden from the eyes of Christ. His eyes penetrate. His eyes see all. Just imagine looking into his face, looking into the eyes of someone who can see into your very soul, who knows your every thought, who knows All that you have done who knows if you're telling the truth. These are the same eyes that were filled with mercy and compassion on the sick when he came the first time. These are the same eyes that expressed joy and fellowship with his disciples. The same ones that wept over Jerusalem and how she was lost. The same eyes which shed tears at the tomb of Lazarus. Those that looked with forgiveness upon his executioners. These are the same eyes that will penetrate in judgment upon his return. And notice too in verse twelve, John sees that Christ's head has on it many diadems or rulers' crowns, and he wears not just one crown as if he were merely a king. He wears not only ten diadems like the Antichrist in Acts 13, in Revelation 13.1. as if he were a powerful ruler. Jesus wears many crowns many diadems to show that he is the king he is the sovereign he is the lord over all lords when jesus came the first time you remember he allowed himself to be at the mercy of rulers at the mercy of kings men like herod and pilate but now he returns as the sovereign over them and this great king has come for one purpose it is a purpose which we can see in what he is wearing look at verse 13 While the saints are clothed in white, clean garments, notice that Jesus is described wearing a robe, a robe dipped in blood. Now, this robe or a cloak was probably like one that a Roman general would wear coming to battle. And many naturally think about, you know, with Jesus wearing clothing with blood on it, it must be his blood, right? But actually here, the context in this passage shows us that we're not talking about Christ as a redeemer here, but Christ as a judge, you see, the first time when he came, Jesus wore a purple robe, a robe that was not of his own choosing, one that was put upon him by Herod's men to mock him. And that was a robe that became soaked with his own blood. But at Jesus's second coming, he is going to wear a robe of his own choosing, a warrior's cloak, one that is soaked with blood, not his own blood, but the blood of his enemies. And notice that there are not just a few drops of blood on it, but that it is dipped in blood. We see from the beginning of verse 15, Christ is prepared for war. And he's prepared for war not only in what he is wearing in this cloak dripped with the blood of his enemies, but also too by the sharp sword that is coming out of his mouth. That sword symbolizes his weapon of judgment will be the word of his mouth. You remember how creation was brought about, right? How did God create the world? Through his Son, through the spoken word, right? Hebrews 1 talks about the fact that in verse 3, that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. And here in Revelation 19, we see that at his second coming, the enemies who rejected his words will be destroyed by them. Let's pause here for a minute. I want you to think about this. Is this the Jesus you pictured coming back? Is this the one that was in your mind's eye as you heard about or considered the resurrection and his return? I've heard many, many people speak so casually of the resurrected Jesus, describing him and portraying him as a self-deprecating, meek, unassuming errand boy. But listen to John's description of him in Revelation 1, verse 14. It is one similar to the one we saw here in Revelation 1, 14. John says there when he has this first vision and see, first sees Christ here in the book of Revelation... He says this of Jesus His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. This is Jesus. This is the risen Lord. This is the resurrected King of all creation. And when John found himself standing next to him in this vision, next to this holy and awesome God, he dropped in fear. He, he fainted with fear. He was terrified. The same one who, the night before he was crucified, was leaning upon Jesus' chest. You see, Jesus indeed is a kind, gracious, and loving passionate, merciful Lord, but he is Lord. And we must never forget that. He deserves our reverence. He deserves our worship. In Revelation 19, we see Christ as a warrior, as a conquering warrior. He's coming to battle with his mighty army in tow, and in addition to describing Christ's appearance and what he looked like and what was around him, John also gives for us in this section that we read in Revelation 19, he also gives for us Jesus' names. There are four names that John mentions in particular. Look back at Revelation 19, 11. When Jesus bursts on the scene, the first thing that he brings up, the first thing that he describes is not what, it, what Jesus looks like, but it is what he is called. He says there, he who sat upon the white horse is called faithful and true. Back in Revelation 1.5, he was called the faithful witness. In 3.7, he was called the one who is true. In 3.14, the faithful and true witness. And these terms, these descriptions all tell us that Jesus is trustworthy, that he's reliable, that he's genuine, that this is the true king who keeps all of his promises. Not one of them will fail. The context here that's talking about in judgment says that he is especially trustworthy in his judgment. As verse 11 says, in righteousness he judges. And I think the emphasis here is not only that he is faithful to judge sin, but also that he he never judges unfairly. He is not an unjust judge, but he is just in all of his decisions. Jesus isn't like a human ruler who is fraught with bias and, and corruption or lack of discernment. Jesus is the perfectly reliable king who never errs in judgment, who never lacks in knowing what to do and how to do it. One whose decisions can never be questioned or maligned because he is faithful and true. John gives us a second name that he sees at the end of verse 12 when he says that Christ has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. Now John doesn't say here where he sees the name written, Maybe around his head or something, because he's just been describing features from Christ's head. But he does say that the name that he sees is not known by anyone except Jesus himself. And you know, it never ceases to amaze me. You know, when the Bible describes something that, that uh, isn't understandable or can't be known, how often commentators try to explain it or identify it. They just can't, can't help themselves. Some say that, well, John couldn't read the name here because it was illegible. I guess maybe Jesus scribbled it real fast on his way down. I don't know. <laughs> Others say that maybe it's probably a personal reference that included Yahweh, his personal name. Some say that it's connected to the name above every name mentioned in Philippians 2.9, the name of Jesus. Others say it's related to the name that's on his robe, which is described in verse 19. Now, here's my theory about this. Nobody knows except Jesus. Isn't that what verse 12 tells us? Nobody knows what this name is, what it means. No one can understand it, only Jesus himself. Now that brings a question to my mind. If that is the case, if no one can understand it, why is it written there? And why does John make note of it? Well, I think it's to remind us of a few things. I think it's one to remind us that it's God's prerogative and authority to withhold any information that he chooses. It reminds us that there will always be things which only God knows. I think it also reminds us that only He is knowable because He made Himself known. It's not that that we were able to discover through effort and study and understanding who Christ is. Those testimonies that you heard earlier, they talked about the fact that it wasn't because of their efforts and their doing and their knowledge, their understanding that they saw who Jesus really was, but because He revealed Himself to them. I think we are told that He has a name written on Him that no one knows Not so that we would try to figure it out, but so that we would worship our great and transcendent and incomprehensible God. You realize for all eternity, we will be learning about Jesus. We're never going to plumb the depths of who God is. God is infinite. And we will be learning him for all eternity. There's a third name. That John mentions here at the end of verse 13 and his name is called the word of God that should remind us about how John opened his fourth gospel when he said in the very first verse in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Now, what is this fact that here this name that Jesus being called the word of God what does that tell us about him? Well, think about it. What are words for? What do words do? What is their function? Communicate, right? To interact. Jesus here, the God-man, is the very embodiment of God's communication to us. For when we hear Christ, we hear God. When we see Christ, we see God. He reveals God to us, for He is God. He declares to us the mind and the heart of God, because He is the Word of God. Just as Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. And like this name, his name faithful and true, the name the Word of God reminds us again that Jesus is reliable. He is genuine. He is truth. He accurately and perfectly represents the purpose, the character, and the declarations of God. Now if you move down to verse 16, that is where we see the fourth name that John gives. And this one is written prominently across his robe and along his thigh, maybe like a banner. It's a glorious name. It's an exalted name. It is the name of supreme authority. We know this name. Say it with me. King of kings and Lord of lords. Many rulers on earth fancy themselves with this name. Roman emperors often thought of themselves as a ruler of rulers or even as divine. The Persian kings thought of themselves and would describe themselves as a king of kings. But there's only one who can make that claim. And there's only one who can back it up. And believers, brothers and sisters, we we know this to be true of Jesus, right? Right? And now, at Christ return, emblazoned upon himself, all the world will see upon the warrior cloak of this exalted king that this is the king of kings. This is the Lord of lords. This is the one who is supreme over all the universe. It will be plain for everyone to see, for all will see him that day as he comes out of the sky and down to earth. Theologian George Eldon Ladd made an interesting observation as he considered these four names that were mentioned. Here in Revelation 19, he said this. Jesus is known to himself by his hidden name. He's known to the churches as the faithful and true, the word of God. He is known to the world as king of kings and Lord of lords. I think this is important to see this because over the centuries, Jesus has been dismissed by the world as simply a teacher, a, a mystic, a prophet, a wise man, a miracle worker someone searching for a following, even a myth. But Scripture gives an entirely different description of Christ, doesn't it? Think back to Daniel and his description in Daniel seven thirteen, where he said, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Or what Paul said in Philippians 2.9, when he said this, For this reason also God highly exalted him and gave him a name, bestowed on him a name, which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the resurrection happened on this day that resurrection was jesus's inauguration it was the declaration that jesus is the king of kings and when kings take the throne they don't move into obscurity but they enforce their rule right what do you think a king would do if he were to take the throne and find his kingdom in rebellion to take action won't he and that's exactly what we see in revelation 19 For John not only shows us Jesus' appearance, not only his names, but he also describes his actions. Because when the King of Kings cracks open the sky, he's not coming for a social visit. He's not coming to take all of us to Starbucks. He's not coming to prove that he exists to all the doubters out there. He's not coming to give those who've rejected him another chance. No, there is one purpose for his return. And we see this at the end of verse 11. When John says, in righteousness, Jesus judges and wages war. Bethlehem's infant is now heaven's warrior. The butchered lamb is now the slaughtering lion. The compassionate savior is the holy judge. The one who was judged by the wicked at his first coming becomes their judge upon his return. See, because when Jesus is coming, when he comes back, he's coming to wage war. He's coming for battle. Quite a contrast, isn't it, to his first coming? In his first coming, he came not to destroy, but to rescue. John three seventeen, Jesus said, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And while his purpose the first time was to seek and save the lost, we see here in Revelation his purpose the second time is to seek and destroy the wicked. And notice the fury in which he comes. This is sobering. Verse 15. From his mouth, again, that is Jesus. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Again, that sword coming out of his mouth signifies that judgment will come by his word. As Isaiah 11.4 tells us, of the Messiah. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. John also says in verse fifteen that Jesus will rule them with a rod of iron. That's an exact quote from Psalm two. Psalm two, verse nine. That Psalm was written by David to describe the coronation of God's Son as the Messiah. And it describes also the, the commission of the Messiah and how he would deal with the enemies of God. God says to his son in Psalm 2.8, Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. There's that exact quote that we saw in Revelation. And you shall shatter them like earthenware. This psalm depicts the Messiah smashing God's enemies like clay pots. And then Psalm 2 ends with this warning in verse 10. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he may not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Folks, this is speaking of Jesus, this is speaking of the Messiah. And that phrase, his wrath, may soon be kindled. That, the idea they're given in the Hebrew is that it can happen at any moment. Jesus' anger may break out at any second. It's the picture of a, like a balloon that's filled up near its maximum. And air is continuing to go inside this balloon. And it continues to fill up and fill up. And at one point, what's going to happen? It's going to burst. And that's what's being described here. That the wrath of the Messiah is ready to burst at any moment. That's exactly what we see at Christ's return. Look at the end of verse 15, where it says, Jesus treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. That is a graphic picture. In Isaiah 63 and Revelation 14, it also describes this winepress of God's wrath. And if you look in those passages, it depicts God's enemies being smashed like grapes and their blood splattering everywhere. Again, very graphic. Some of you may be thinking at this point, wait wait a minute, wait a minute, time out. Time out here. Are you telling me that the sweet and compassionate and and tender Jesus that I read about in the Gospels is going to be smashing people with a rod of iron and and squishing them like grapes? This is nothing like, he's nothing like that in the Gospels. I mean, have not you seen the History Channel's Bible miniseries? This isn't the same guy. He never lifted a finger to smash anyone. But friend, don't be confused about how God is unfolding his plan to take back his creation. Yes, it is true that Christ did not bring his judgment on his first visit. But at times, oh, how he wished for it. Luke twelve forty nine. Jesus himself said this, I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. That's our Lord expressing his desire. And at his return, that fire is in full blaze. His fury is unleashed. The balloon is popped. Verse 15 shows that Christ is coming ready for battle to destroy his enemies. And notice that it is Christ alone who is in the battle. Yes, there's a mighty army behind him. But if you'll notice, the, the army doesn't have any weapons. The saints, the church, does not come with Jesus in order to do battle with him, but to observe the battle. And that battle is depicted in verses 19 through 21. And it really isn't much of a battle, actually. If you read there, it, it talks about the fact that Christ, basically, when he comes back, he simply seizes the Antichrist and the false prophet and throws them into the lake of fire. Amen? And then the rest of Jesus' enemies are simply slain by his word alone. Again, picture that scene as, as Christ comes in through the sky and everyone recognizes, there he is, and so all the missiles, all the tanks, all the guns, all the enemies focus their attention on him and aim at him, ready to destroy him in a moment. But guess what happens in the midst of all that war and clamor and and thirst for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ? In a second, it's all quiet. Just like that stormy sea of Galilee that night when Jesus said, peace, be still. In a moment, all the bodies drop to the ground and become food for the scavenging birds. It is a sober end. But it's not sober only because of that physical death. It's sober too because there is a final end. Ahead in chapter 20 of Revelation, it describes a great white throne where Jesus will bring eternal judgment on all who have not repented from their sin, placed their trust in Christ, committed to follow Him for the rest of their days. That eternal judgment... That will happen at the great white throne. That eternal judgment is to be thrown in the same lake of fire. That the false prophet and the beast are thrown into. It's a real place. It's a real place. A place of pain and anguish. Suffering. Physical death is indeed tragic. But this eternal death is terrifying. And it's final. Second Thessalonians 1.7 says that the Lord Jesus Will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. That is Jesus Christ coming to judge. So, what does this all have to do with the resurrection? Well, we need to remember something. The resurrection is the singular event which identifies Jesus as the judge. Acts 17.31 says that God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, furnishing proof to all men by what? Raising Him from the dead. I realize this is heavy stuff. Probably by this point you're thinking, this is not what I thought I'd be hearing this morning. I I came for an uplifting message, one that would encourage and inspire. Look back at the beginning of Revelation 19. Let your eyes go back up to see. This is what John saw just before Christ's return. Revelation 19, verse 1. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot, speaking of Babylon, who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. And avenged, he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her, those who were martyred in the tribulation. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sits on the throne, saying this, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you His bondservants, you who fear Him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Do you know what is happening right before Jesus' return to do battle against His enemies? A worship service! The only four times hallelujah is mentioned explicitly in the New Testament are right here in Revelation 19, as all praise and glory is being given to God for His judgment, that He is coming. commands us to give praise to God. There's a tone here. Right before this massive slaughter at the end of history, there is joy and celebration and worship happening in heaven. It's a rejoicing in God's judgment. And we see this many places in Scripture. Psalm 96 verse 11 says, Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for He is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. There's joy in heaven at the judgment of God because everything is being made right. Jesus is finally going to be honored and exalted as he should be. Is that happening now? When you look at the Yahoo News or MSN or turn on the TV or anything, do you see uh, the first thing being said? Oh, praise Jesus. It's so great that we have a loving Savior and we want to honor him today before we tell you the news. Is that what you hear? No, we get just the opposite. Just the opposite. Rebellion against God will be stamped out one day. Sin will be rightly dealt with. Jesus Christ will be lifted up and honored and worshiped and praised as he deserves. Is that not a good thing, brothers and sisters? It is a great thing. Worship won't be confined within just buildings and services on occasional times during the week. I mean, don't, don't we rejoice in the story when we see the bad guy getting defeated? I mean, come on, be honest with me. Did you not cheer when Darth Vader picked up the emperor and chucked him into the power grid? <laughs> I know you did. Or when Dorothy threw the water on the wicked witch. You remember that, right? Or how about one of my favorites, when Sauron, as the ring of power was thrown in the lava, melting, you see Sauron going down in defeat, being destroyed. Did we not cheer at those things? were we not happy to see that take place? And those are fictitious stories. This is real. This is happening. One day Jesus will vanquish his foes. He will bring justice. He will bring righteousness to his creation. He will be worshipped as Lord and King. This will happen one day. It's going to come. Jesus will finish the job he began. He will defeat all of his enemies and save his friends. Is that not encouraging? Is that not reason to rejoice? Hallelujah! He will come. But for now, our patient and merciful God waits. As Second Peter 3.9 says, He waits, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is so kind. He is so merciful. How much longer He's going to wait, nobody knows except Him. But the judge will come. The judge will make an appearance. And I want you for a moment to look closely at this judge. I want you to look in your mind's eye at his hand, the hand which is holding the rod of iron. I want you to look closely at his feet, the feet which are treading upon the winepress of God's fierce wrath. Do you notice something about them? There are holes in them. Holes made by a large rusty nail. As his body was being driven onto a piece of wood. See those holes are there to remind us. That the fierce judge of Revelation 19. Bears the marks of a loving savior. This is one who died. So that sinners will be set free. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. If you've not committed your life. To Him, if you have not sought His forgiveness, then heed the warning given in Psalm 2 to do homage, do honor to the Son, lest you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled any moment. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Now is the time to take refuge in Him. Now is the time to submit to Him. Now is the time to confess your sins to this great Lord, this loving Savior. Now is the time to seek His mercy. Ask Him for forgiveness Commit that you would turn from your sins to follow Him. If you repent from your sin, if you place your trust in Christ and the work that He did on the cross, He will not condemn you. He will forgive you. He will not reject you as an enemy. He will embrace you as His child. He will not vent His anger upon you, but He will shower you with His love. But you must do business with Jesus. It is Jesus and only Jesus who can wash away your sin. As I've said before, hell is not equal payment for sin because hell lasts forever. It never stops. Only the blood of Christ shed on the cross, only the blood of a perfect man can pay for your sin. It is Jesus and only Jesus who can bring you to heaven. It is Jesus and only Jesus who can save you. He is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is the one who created the universe. He is the one who sustains the universe. He is the one who humbled himself to become a human. He is the one who lived a perfect life in obedience to God. He is the one who had great and infinite compassion for the lowly and downcast. He is the one who sought the lost. He is the one who was beaten and tortured for sin. He is the one who was put on the cross and died in that cross. The only just payment for sin... He's the one who suffered the full wrath of God. For our sin. He is the one who cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is the one who could not be held in the tomb. He is the one whose sacrifice is sufficient and was accepted by the Father. He is the one who ascended into heaven to glory to the right hand of the throne of God. He is the one who freely grants forgiveness to all who would ask him. He is the one who shows mercy to all who repents. He is the one who will pardon those who submit to him as Lord. He is the one coming back for his bride. He's the one returning soon to save his friends and to judge his enemies. He is the one with the power to send to hell or to rescue to heaven. He is the one who all creation will bow before. He is the one who is king of kings and Lord of lords. He is faithful and true. He is the word of God. He is savior. He is judge. He is God. God almighty. And he one day will be worshipped as such as he should. All creation. Saved or not, will declare him as Lord. But only those who submit to him, only those who've been granted repentance and faith from him, only those will worship him as Lord. Do you eagerly await his return? Do you anticipate it with great affection? Does the day of Easter or Resurrection Day excite you? Just the anticipation. Do you yearn? To worship Him in His presence, face to face. Listen to the vision of the throne room of heaven in Revelation 5, verse 11. As John describes what he sees happening there, if the band would come up. Revelation 5, verse 11. Then I looked... And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive glory to receive riches and wisdom and might and honor and power and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped him. You know, Jesus deserves that worship. He's the Lamb of God, He's the Judge of the world, He's the Savior of mankind. Let's give it to him now as we sing together, Worthy is the Lamb. Jesus, you are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy not only of that song singing to you. You are worthy not only of this day dedicated to you. You are worthy of all worship and praise. You are worthy of all our lives. You are worthy of all our love, our obedience. You deserve it. Lord, I pray none would leave this room not desiring to worship you as worthy, that none would leave this room who have not seen you, who have not understood their need for you, who have not seen their sin and their need to be forgiven from. And I pray you would, by your Spirit, open hearts. Or may you receive our worship and all we say and do this week. In Jesus' name, amen.